So uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do give praise to your name and thanksgiving for the blessing of coming together as the body of Christ. We pray that, Lord, uh, everything we do in this place would be pleasing and satisfying to you, that it would be a sweet aroma before you as we worship in truth. Lord, thank you for your scriptures and the privilege we have to open them week by week. I pray that you would guide our uh, understanding this morning, that you would illumine your scripture, help us to comprehend what it says and to incorporate it into our thinking, Lord, that we might be more like you. So we thank you for the pen of Daniel and the, this morning the words that Gabriel spoke to him. Pray that you use them, Lord, to help us to grow and become more like Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. This is week number 40 in our study of the book of Daniel. We're over in chapter 9, and for the last two weeks we've been in chapter 9, verse 24. Um, we'll be there again today, and at least for part of next week. Because um, there's a lot that uh, Gabriel says in this verse. You remember that he started by saying that God had decreed uh, 70 weeks, or as the literal interpretation would be, 77s. Um, so, and that God himself has made a decree, so these things that Gabriel speaks will become true because God has the power and the right to do whatever he wants to in his creation. And so Gabriel begins to name six accomplishments that will happen during these 70 weeks. And we've made it through three of them so far. Um, we saw that the Jews will stop their rebellion against God. The Jews have always rebelled against God, against his law, against his ordinances, um, worshiping idols. All of this will come to an end uh, during these 70 weeks. And we talked about that it will happen right at the end of the 70th week. And then um, last, we also have seen that they'll... Um, do away with sin, that God will do away with sin. Not that there will be sinless perfection on the earth, that won't happen for a while, but that the power and the authority of sin has been defeated, that um, the power has been broken, and that the sting of sin, which is death, eternal death, has been overcome. And God said to, through Gabriel to Daniel, that that would be an accomplishment during these 70 weeks. And then we also saw that there would be atonement for iniquity, meaning that not only the uh, power of sin, but the penalty of sin and the consequences of that sin have been done away with, that there's a, a price to be paid anytime anyone sins, and that that price has been, for those who've placed faith in Jesus Christ, has been paid in full. Uh, we looked at the verse last week that talks about there's a, a sin debt, there's a certificate of sin for every person that's ever lived. And that certificate lists your sins 
and then it also lists what the penalty is and that that certificate of debt that you owe God because anybody who's transgressed the law of God has to pay a penalty, has to recompense, has to um, pay for their sins and that that sin debt that Jesus Christ nailed it to the cross, the scripture says, stamped it, paid in full. And so that atonement was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so these six things, as we begin to work through them, they're related to one another, but they're each different. They each give us a different perspective. Um, they are things that only God can accomplish, that man can't do, and that God will do during the 70 weeks of Daniel. And so those 70 weeks, when Gabriel is speaking to Daniel here, have not yet begun. Later in this uh, vision or in this explanation that Gabriel gives, we'll see when that clock begins to tick for those 70 weeks. And there's a lot of debate about that, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who have different theories and all. Um, this past week, I've been uh, studying through the book of Ezra because that's where you get most of those details. There's a little bit over in Nehemiah also. And so we'll go to those um, verses and those chapters and look at how Ezra lays everything out to see when does this clock of 70 weeks begin to tick. But at this time, when Gabriel's speaking to Daniel, I don't believe it's begun yet. There's a very specific event that begins the clock to tick uh, on these 70 weeks. And so we'll look at that because I think it's pretty clear in Scripture, although there are people who would debate with me and spit at me and yell, and I'm not going to do all that, but we'll, we'll look at what the Scripture says, and then we'll have to pick one of these events to determine when the clock begins to tick. So um, it's interesting. If you look at these six things, I mean, they're, they're straightforwardly given in this verse, I mean, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. You can divide these six things into two groups of three. And matter of fact, Gabriel does that. The first three you'll notice, um, finish the transgression to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, are all dealing with sin. They're all sin-related. And then the last three, if you look at those, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place, all deal with righteousness. So you have three that are sin-related. You have three that are righteousness-related. You also have three that were accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ or there shortly thereafter. I mean, you've got um, to do away with sin, to make atonement for iniquity, and also to anoint the most holy place. All of those accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ at the end of the 69th week of the 70 weeks. And then the other three will happen at the end of the 70th week. And so you have these different ways that you can classify or separate 
helps you to remember what these six things are if you think about sin and righteousness or you think about at the end of the 69th week in the cross of Jesus Christ or at the end of the 70th week. Now, parsing it that way, it's very clear that the 70th week is far removed from the 69th week. And that's the way I see it, that's the way I interpret it, that's the way I separate it, because I think that's what the scripture does. But um, there are a lot of people who would disagree with that and say they were all consecutive. Um, I don't think so. I think the 70th week is yet to happen, but the 69th week has clearly happened because that was when the Messiah was cut off. That was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So half of these things were accomplished through that. Now, this next one that we look at, to bring in everlasting righteousness, is not one of those things that happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's been very clear for the last 2,000 years that righteousness does not reign on this planet, that evil still reigns, the prince of the power of the air is still uh, about his work, and so um, righteousness does not reign today, but it will, and it will be accomplished through the work of God. Now, everlasting, we've seen this word a couple of times in Daniel so far. Um, related in somewhat to this everlasting righteousness. Um, we first saw it in chapter 4, which is where, where Nebuchadnezzar, that whole chapter, remember, is a proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar to everybody on the planet, not just to the people in his kingdom, but to all nations, um, most of which are in his kingdom, but not all of them. And so he proclaimed to the whole world this story about first a prophecy that he would go insane and then the actual going insane and then coming back to sanity. After he came back to sanity, he made a proclamation to the whole world about God and his authority over the planet. And so I want to turn back to chapter 4. And at the very beginning of this proclamation, now this is after all the events of chapter 4 have happened that Nebuchadnezzar said this. But in the first three verses, he talks about this everlasting um, kingdom righteousness of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Everlasting kingdom. This is the most powerful man on the planet at this time. This is King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, the most powerful man on the planet saying, there is another kingdom that is going to outlast mine. That's quite a declaration for him to make. It's an everlasting kingdom. Then at the end of the chapter, when he's related all the insanity and coming back to his senses and uh, his pride that uh, caused him by the hand of God to go insane, um, all of that he's clearly related and spoken to the people and then he comes down in 
verse 34 of chapter 4, and he, he goes into this series of verses that are praise to God. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, he's talking about the, what I believe are seven years that he was insane. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So talking about God's authority over his creation that is an everlasting authority. And so there is a time, Gabriel says, when God will usher in everlasting righteousness because he has the right to do that and he has the power to do that. And he will do that. And the reason you can be assured that he will do that is because the Almighty decreed through Gabriel that he would do that. So it's not like there's a doubt. It's not like there, well, maybe that'll happen. It absolutely will happen because God has declared it will happen. And here Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the earth, back in the 6th century B.C., understood that. And that God will do whatever he well pleases. Now today we push against that, right? Because we're powerful and we're arrogant and we think we know and we, we can control things. And God says, no, you can't. And just laughs at what we think is authority that we possess because only he can do whatever he well pleases. We, for an instant, can do whatever we will please, but that doesn't last very long. And so here Gabriel affirms what Nebuchadnezzar understood and says that God will usher in everlasting righteousness. We also saw the same thought or the same concept in chapter 7. And this is with the, um, the chapter that is about the four beasts that come up out of the sea. You remember that. It represents uh, the four kingdoms that would come, uh, beginning with Babylonia and then the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and then ultimately the Romans. Those four kingdoms represented by four beasts that came up out of the sea in chapter 7. But the same thought, because in the middle of all those beasts coming up, you remember there was an interlude in which Daniel saw um, the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. And then coming up to the Ancient of Days was the Son of Man, clearly representing God the Father and Jesus Christ coming up. And as Jesus Christ comes up to the Father, Daniel heard these words proclaimed in chapter 7, in verse 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with, cloud, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. So here's Jesus Christ 
coming up before God the Father. And, then, and to him, to Jesus Christ, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All the other kingdoms that we see in chapter 7, those that we see in chapter 8, those that we saw um, all the way back in chapter 2, all those kingdoms will be destroyed except for this one. This is an everlasting dominion. It goes on forever. It never ceases. We saw that also back in chapter 2. You remember this is the, um, the vision of the great statue. Nebuchadnezzar comes out after having had this vision, and he says, I want you to tell me what the vision was, and I want you to tell me what it means. Of course, no one could do that. Daniel goes before the Lord and says, please show me what this vision was so that we might not be killed like all the other wise men meaning him and his three friends. Uh, Daniel was praying for protection for them, but not for the other guys. Let you do whatever with them, what you want to. And so after God showed Daniel this vision and its meaning, Daniel went before Nebuchadnezzar and he spoke what this vision means. And you remember there were these four kingdoms. And then ultimately there was a stone cut without hands meaning this is God's stone. And it came and pulverized all the other uh, materials that were in this statue, the uh, gold, the silver, the bronze, and the clay, pulverized them all to such a degree that when the wind blew, it blew it away like chaff, and there was no remnant left of any of those kingdoms. But of that stone cut without hands, The scripture, Daniel, giving the interpretation in 2.44, in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So this has been a constant theme throughout the book of Daniel, in chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 7, and now here again in chapter 9, that there is this everlasting kingdom that will never diminish, that God will usher in in the end. After all the other kingdoms have run their course, after all the other um, activity in human mankind has run its course, God will put an end to it and will establish a kingdom of righteousness. So that's coming. And while that, I believe, begins with the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, it doesn't end at the end of the thousand years. It then transitions, as we see in the book of Revelation, into an eternal, everlasting kingdom where you have a new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem that will endure forever, that is eternal righteousness. So Gabriel, speaking to Daniel, gives him these words 
that speaks of this everlasting kingdom. That it's one of the accomplishments that God will do during the 70 years. Now, the only way I can understand that is that it's ushered in at the end of the 70th year, and then it continues on. So it can't be that eternal kingdom that ultimately happens. I mean, it's part, that's part of it, but it has to begin during the 70 weeks because Daniel said, I mean, Gabriel says these things will be accomplished in the 70 weeks that, I, that God has decreed. So it has to start during those 70 weeks. And the only way I can understand that is that it begins at the, with the beginning of the millennial kingdom, which is the end of the 70th week. Otherwise, it wouldn't begin during the 70 weeks. So these things have to fit together. They're not arbitrary. I mean, most, three of them, as we said, happened in the 69th week, at the end of the 69th week. And these other three will happen within the 70 weeks. And so it's at the end of the 70th week, I believe, when these things uh, begin to, well, when it starts, and then it goes on. Clearly, the reign of Jesus Christ, Christ sitting on the throne of David in full righteousness, is a reign of righteousness, is everlasting righteousness. Doesn't mean the whole world is righteous. Doesn't mean there's no sin. But the reign, the rule, the order of the day is righteousness. Now, ultimately, in the eternal kingdom, there is no sin. But during the millennial reign, I believe there is. But that doesn't mean that, that sin reigns because its power will have been broken the devil will be have thrown into the abyss and chained there so he can't get out. You assume that his demons are there with him. And then there's people with saints reigning over them and Jesus Christ reigning over the saints from the throne of David. A reign of righteousness. So that begins everlasting righteousness. So these, these things, like I said, must fit together for our understanding to make sense. If you got one point that doesn't fit into, into your, your thoughts or into your scheme or to however you think about these things, then what right do you have to hold that if it doesn't match what is given in Scripture? So, because Scripture always trumps the thoughts of men and the schemes and the keys and all these other things that are spoken of, the Scripture itself trumps all of that. So um, in Ezekiel 37, we saw this same concept. This is where I'll stop with this, this thought. But in Ezekiel 37, this is um, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, which I believe is the resurrection of the Jews in the um, millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I could be wrong, but that's the way that I take this. Um, it's after chapter 36, where we looked at a couple weeks ago, maybe even last week, no, two weeks ago, when we talked about um, the salvation of the Jews at the beginning of the millennial kingdom um, in, expressed in the terms of the New Testament, of washing with water, of 
being circumcised in their heart by taking out their heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, and also by being filled with the Holy Spirit. All three of those things given in chapter 36. And then we move on into all of this is kind of happening contemporaneously at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, this resurrection of the valley of dry bones. But down in verse 24 of this chapter, after you have the cities filled with all these people being resurrected, you come to the establishment of the Davidic kingdom. And so in 24, he says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in, the, in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. That's righteousness, okay? That's what that is. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, for my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So in those five verses, four times he uses the word forever, and once he uses the word for everlasting. So five times in five verses, you get the concept that this lasts forever. It never goes away. It never ceases. Now, it transitions from an earthly millennial kingdom into the eternal kingdom, which is on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, with new heavens. But nevertheless, it begins here and goes on forever. So, I mean, it's, I don't know if the book of Daniel could be more explicit I mean, because now we've got it um, given also in Ezekiel confirming it that this kingdom of God, this righteousness, will endure forever. And so this is one of the accomplishments of God during the 70 weeks of Daniel. So these 70 weeks are critical that we understand them, right? Because if we don't and, they, and these things are not accomplished, then there is no eternal kingdom. There is no establishment of righteousness to reign. So these things are critical that we understand them. And it shapes and it forms the way you think about the earth today and all what is going on on this planet and what ultimately will be true. Now, there's a lot to go through to get to that point, according to the book of Revelation. But nevertheless, it comes. And God cuts those days short so that the elect will not be lost because he's sovereign and he could stop it at any point that he wanted to and do whatever he well pleases but he has decreed that these 70 weeks will happen and there's no altering that once God has decreed he doesn't change his decrees so he's decreed and these things will happen some of them have happened some of them are yet to happen this bringing everlasting righteousness is yet to happen. We haven't seen it yet. We don't see it today. Although there are some who think 
This is the reign of righteousness. Teach. This is the reign of righteousness. And I just shake my head because I don't see it. Because if righteousness reigned, then people would be righteous and they would behave themselves. And the world is not behaving itself. So I don't see how you call this the reign of righteousness. It's always been the plan. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like this. God thought up plan B. Yeah, because. Oh, yeah. Wait, I mean, just take the prophets. I mean, Isaiah is 200 years before this when Daniel's speaking, and he speaks of the same thing, and he even speaks of the end and the eternal reign of righteousness. And yet he's writing hundreds of years before. Yeah. And, you know, and one of my thoughts. I don't know I'm going to do this, but one of my thoughts is that after we get through whatever we're going to do in the Old Testament, that we go and we look at the eschatology of Jesus Christ. And then we look at the eschatology of the apostles and pull out what they thought and what they said. That may be where we go next. Or we may go, I mean, obviously we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah to some degree, we, we may go to some of the minor prophets for a little bit of time. I just don't know. But the more I read, the more I study, the more cohesive all of these writers were. It's just amazing. Yeah. during the 69th week and if you've never laid this out we're going to lay this out to the very day and I'm astounded when I look at it which I did this past week and trying to get ready for us to talk about that it's just astounding and, and how you could miss it I really don't know but there are multitudes of true believers who miss it. And I'm just confused by that. Um, so anyway, um, the last thing I want to say about righteousness. Oh, it's clearly your, uh, which is how you see your scriptures is your her hermeneutic. 
okay? And that's the way you interpret them. And the, to the best of our ability, uh, we use the historical, literal, grammatical hermeneutic. When we look at this in Daniel, or when we look at Revelation, or when we look at anything in between, recognizing that there are symbols, there are um, poetry, there are, as we saw um, from the pulpit last week, there are similes, there are things that speak like other things, but nevertheless, our hermeneutic doesn't change. Lord willing, I mean, it's sometimes difficult, I won't, give, I won't say it's not, but nevertheless, our hermeneutic is, is consistent through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, you know, I told you this a long time ago. We do not believe that the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament, which is the major fallacy I see in some of the other thoughts about what this all means, is that it's reinterpreted by the New Testament. Right. Literally, they believe that is the man who is Christ on earth in order to fulfill that eschatology. Yeah, and that, that thought about the vicar of Christ is the most, I guess, damning, it would be the right word. Um, believing that that human who was born of two human parents is Christ Jesus on this earth. I mean, how? Come on. That's born out of an eschatology. Right, right, and and uh, it's just hard to think about when you get down to what do these religions really believe. You take uh, Islam, and it turns the thought of an antichrist and Jesus Christ and the uh, false prophet and turns it on its head exactly opposite of what the scriptures say. I mean, and we'll look at that, obviously, but I mean, it's exactly opposite of what the scripture says, again, a falsifying of the truth. And it's astounding, some of these things that are believed. And even by well-meaning, true-believing Christians who, who promote the thought that we are now in the reign of righteousness. We are in the millennial kingdom that's spoken of in Revelation. This is it. And I'm just so confused by how they could have those thoughts. You have a billion people today in Roman Catholic believing that. Oh, absolutely. It does. Yeah. Yeah, and there, I mean, the majority of true believers hold to that, what I just spoke, 
And so I believe Christianity is a small slice of the population. I mean, a few percentages. And so we who hold to this hermeneutic are just, just a little slither of the Christians. So we're, we're this dot <laughs> that has no significance, really doesn't. Um, when you look at the whole world and the religions of the world, I mean, I don't even think we would make the graph. We would be a footnote to the graph because you, you, can't, you can't, you know, the, the line to draw us would be wider than we are. So uh, just realize that's what I'm teaching you, okay? <laughs> you have to understand where, where we're at. We're just insignificant. Yeah, I do praise the Lord for that. One last thing about righteousness. Righteousness cannot be conjured up by man. And so we'll look at a couple of passages, just two in the New Testament. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. You probably know these well. Paul writing to the church at Philippi in chapter 3 and verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that you cannot conjure that up. You cannot produce that as a human. We're tainted with sin in every way, in every area of our life, in every area of our being, we're tainted with sin. The only way for righteousness to be produced in any human being is from God. Paul says it clearly. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which you probably have memorized, says it well also. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's craziness. It's crazy talk, right? That... You and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, are the righteousness of God. I don't look like it on too many occasions. But yet, it's the truth of Scripture. It's the beginning, the first fruits of the eternal righteous kingdom. Yet, that has not yet been realized. It will and thank God that when we're in that kingdom, we will have been changed from mortal to immortal, whether we're alive now or those who've died since Christ died, will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And this mortal will put on immortality and righteousness. So in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, where there's still sin, you won't be sinful. You'll have been changed. Thank God. And so that's the beginning of the eternal righteousness. So Gabriel tells Daniel that 
During the 70 weeks, God will bring in everlasting righteousness. It will happen. Does it seem like it sometime? Seems like he's delaying, but he has the right to do it whenever he wants to, and so he continues to delay. But it will happen. It's the fourth thing that he gave us. Now, actually in your notes, you can see that I intended to get through seal up vision and literally not prophecy, but prophet. But we won't get to that today <laughs> because it's five minutes still. So we'll get to that next time. And, and hopefully, if the Lord wills, we'll do the last two next time, which is um, to seal up prophecy, to seal up vision and prophet, and to um, anoint the most holy place. So Lord willing, we'll look at those two next time. Thanks for your time.